Lord, we do praise you today and desire that uh, you be glorified in all that we do and all that we say. We might see you in your word, and particularly as we see the revelation that you've given us concerning what you are doing in the world in a broad way and what you have done and what you will complete in us. We praise you for that. Desire that it would give us a perspective on living and life and everything else that we face. We commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in the book of Romans, we're going to look at God's sovereign plan. He's been pleased to reveal to us lots of detail concerning not only future events as it pertains to the entire universe. In fact, Romans 8, we've seen already kind of the big picture in terms of the whole universe. We saw that in chapter 8, beginning in verse 18 through about verse 23, where even the entire universe that the creation anticipates what God is doing and anticipates what God is doing in us particularly. And now on this passage, 28 through 30, he's going to expand upon what he did in the past, starting in eternity, if you can say starting in relationship to eternity, and what he will complete in eternity future. So he's been pleased to give us a sovereign plan and some detail concerning it. So I want to focus on that today. Last time we were in the book of Romans, we talked about this plan, and now we'll expound a few of the details concerning it. And again, just a reminder, Paul writes to real people in real places, not just the book of Romans, but all of the letters, not only Paul's letters, but All of the other letters of the New Testament are written to particular people in the first century, primarily. And because we have scripture, it's inspired and inerrant. It is just as applicable in the 21st century as well. So let me give you, first of all, the context of our passage. We always want to keep in mind the context of every passage that we look at. If we fail to understand the context, oftentimes we will be misled concerning the understanding of that passage. You may not remember, but in chapter 6, if you remember back, what was it? I don't know, a year ago? A long time ago? Remember at the end of chapter 6, here's a verse that is very, very commonly used in relationship to salvation. And it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there is an application that you can draw in relationship to salvation and eternal life. But if you remember, I stressed the context of that passage. And what was the context of that passage? Does anyone remember? What major section of the book of Romans do we find it in? It's not in the area that he's dealing with justification or salvation, but what section? Chapter 6, 7, and 8, obviously. We have to go back and start. Chapter 6, verse (laughs) 1. Sanctification. Well, even though it's been a while since we've been in chapter 6, chapter 8 is still part of that context. And more specifically, the context, this is still part of this broader paragraph that begins in verse 18. And actually, you can even go back to verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, what's more prominent is the aspect of glory and the future that God has for the believer. But it's in the context of suffering. And then in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he expounds how the entire creation is anticipating that future glory. So this is in the context of a very practical area that everyone experiences, that we all go through varying degrees, some more severe than others, but it's in the context of suffering 
and it's for the purpose to give us a perspective. In other words, an eternal viewpoint, a view from God's perspective. And the reason that this suffering, no matter how severe it may be, in this present time cannot be compared to the glory is because that glory is so glorious, I guess you could say, or magnificent, that there is no comparison. And he's concluding that little portion in the passage that we're looking at today. So the context from a practical perspective deals with everyday occurrences. As you get older, you have more and more suffering, more and more pain sometimes. So it's in the section dealing with suffering and sanctification. One of the points we made, suffering is one of the main instruments that God uses to sanctify us. And what we mean by that, conforming us to the image of Christ. And he'll remind us of that in verse 29. We'll see that in a moment. So that's kind of a practical context of this passage. Textually, in other words, within the near surrounding verses in the biblical text, it's in the midst of these great promises, these great concepts that God has provided to give us not only the perspective, but also to give us support in the midst of suffering. So we have the greatest support, the indwelling presence and even the prayers of the Holy Spirit himself the power that is available to live differently from the rest of the world in spite of suffering. So we have the greatest support. And then now this eternal perspective that Paul is going to give us in the form of at least a major promise and would include many other sub-promises as well. So, That's a little bit of the textual and practical context. So we're in chapter 8, dealing with the power available for sanctification. Verses 1 through 11, we have power over the sinful flesh. Chapter 8, 12 through 17, sonship. One of those concepts of support. We are part of a family that God looks after and God deals with. So we are sons of the living God fellow sons, you might even say, of Jesus Christ. Then the passage, the end of the passage, 18 through 30, the suffering that I just described in sanctification. In that, we see the future hope in suffering, 18 through 25, present support of the Holy Spirit, that's the prayer support of the Holy Spirit, and now this sovereign plan of sanctification, 28 through through 30. So we've already spent some time looking at verse 28, where we have the promise of this plan that God is revealing to us here. The essence of it, and we've already looked at 28, but I'll just remind you quickly, and we know, in other words, this is doctrine that is contained elsewhere in Scripture as well, has been taught commonly in the first century. Believers are aware God has revealed in the Old Testament as as well as New Testament concerning what God intends for his creation. So we know that God causes all things, a very comprehensive, very broad concept here. All things, no limitations. God causes all things to work together for good for a particular group, those that love God And more specifically, if that's not clear enough, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we spent an entire session looking at the purposes of God. The the broad idea that God has a plan, a far-reaching plan that's began, if you can use that word, I guess, in terms of eternity. God uh, initiated this plan in eternity past, before he even created a universe He had a plan for it and all of the creatures that he would build within it. So we looked at those who are called according to his purpose. And just briefly to remind you, we talked about the purposes of God, this revelation of a plan. We looked at the terms. I won't go over those again. I gave you a series of examples of many passages, many of them in the Old Testament, a few in the New Testament. We'll focus on a couple of them again today because they're related to the 
the uh, next part of the revelation here. And just a list of these we talked about in general. There's very specific passages that speak of this plan and God implementing it. And there's nothing that's going to stand in its way. It's certain. It is sure. It will, in fact, come about. This should give us security and assurance. Deals with individuals. God has individual plans. There's verses that relate to individuals. There's verses that relate to Israel's care. Lots of them in the Old Testament. Some of them in the context when they are about to be destroyed as a nation. God is going to continue to minister and care for them. And in that discipline of Israel... You have some of the clearest and strongest statements concerning God's sovereign plan that he will implement in a future time, even though they will go into exile for 70 years. And he talks about the rebuilding, which would also be an ultimate and future rebuilding for the nation of Israel. There's a plan for all of the nations. We saw verses relating to them. Plan concerning God initiating a whole plan of salvation centered in his son, Jesus Christ, and more specifically, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, We have the outworking of that plan. We're going to look at some verses related to that as well. That includes salvation of the believer. You might even include this passage, Romans 8, and even the works of the believer. This is Ephesians 2.10. I'm just gathering together different categories of verses, in some cases maybe just one, for example, the Ephesians 2.10 passage. And God is going to bring everything to consummation. In other words, this is the end or the future, how everything is going to be brought together. And let me remind you of that passage that we looked at last time we were in Romans, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, another clear passage that emphasizes that God has not only a plan and a purpose, but he's executing it. And in time, he's going to bring it to fulfillment. And the glorious thing is you and I are a part of that plan. He made known to us, there's the revelation, the mystery of his will. In other words, we would not know about it apart from his revelation, but he's made it known according to his kind intention. According to his goodness, it's a good plan, which he purposed. There's the word purposing, same word that we have in uh, Romans, where it talks about working all things according to a purpose, which he purposed in him, capitalized, referring back to Jesus Christ. Verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullest of times. This is a future time frame. I think it refers to a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The fullness of time. It's an administration suitable for the fullness of time. That, that is the summing up of all things. So the plan is going to come together in all of the aspects relating to the nations, relating to Israel, relating to the believer, even relating to the unbeliever, relating to the natural realm, bringing all things, summing up of all things in Christ. He's the focal point of all of world history. Things in the heavens, things upon the earth, so you can imagine even beyond that that you can, you can see, beyond the visible, things in heaven, things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now he's bringing it home to you and I. This is part of our inheritance within a great plan. Having been predestined, that's another word. We're going to look at that word today. What does that mean? In other words, this plan, not only did God have a plan, but uh, he didn't sit back and think, oh, I hope it happens. I hope things turn out okay. But instead, he actually is orchestrating the events to bring all of that plan together. That's great assurance. There's a predestined aspect to it according to his purpose, according to what he planned, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Tremendous passage. Great encouragement. And the greatest encouragement to you and I is we are part of that plan. That's why he writes to the Ephesians to lay this out. 
So, the consummation of all things, there's also passages that relate to these future events when all of this will come together. We call that prophecy. There's lots of prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, even from the 21st century. Also, a reminder, we've been looking in verse 28 at various terms, knowing, oida, knowing by revelation was the point I made there. God has revealed this plan. All things working together, particular Greek word, sunergeo, we get the word synergy or working thing, things that work together to accomplish something. And in this case, all circumstances working together for our good and our benefit, that is believers. We looked at the word called, we're going to look at that again. Kletos, the noun form, this is in this case a call that is effectual. In other words, it includes those that have not only been called. Jesus in Matthew 22, I think verse 14, says many are called. In other words, there's a general, broad call. All are invited to God's salvation. But he also says many are called, few are chosen. He's dealing with those that are chosen in Romans 8.28. So it's a, some theologians call it an effectual call. It's not just the invitation that is broad and includes everyone. So we, that's a key word that we'll come across again. We saw the word purpose at the end of verse 28, prothesis. We're going to see a similar word. And by the way, that word sometimes is translated predestined as well. We said uh, we have a divine purpose that is an eternal Plan. That's what we're looking at. And that brings us to verse 29, 829, where we have the progress of this plan, and it's related primarily to you and I as believers. So that brings us to a theological context. And there's a lot of debate. In fact, a lot has been written by commentators and theologians on Romans 828 through 30. There are different viewpoints, lots of different viewpoints. I'm going to present what I think is the most biblical. I might mention some of the uh, different viewpoints. But I think theologically, if you start with a very definite biblical concept, it'll help you to understand and sort through some of the the problems that not only theologians, but even the average Christian has with some of the concepts that we have here, particularly the one dealing with predestination. Probably the biggest issue here in terms of, well, if God has predestined things, why even share the gospel? Why evangelize? Why be concerned uh, if everything is predestined? Well, the idea is not fatalism. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach fatalism. But it does teach a concept that God is in control of all things. We'll talk about that. So that's a difficult area that people struggle with. But I think if you start with a concept that is in the book of Romans, been a long time since we've been there. But if you look at the first few passages or the first few chapters of the book of Romans, the focus of that is that man is totally incapable of reaching God. That's the essence of total depravity. Doesn't that mean that man is as evil as he possibly can be? That's just the end product of depravity. Depravity is that man has no ability to please God in any way, therefore has no ability to gain salvation or merit before God. Man has no capacity to reach heaven, you might say, or eternal life. And let me just remind you of the concept that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. It's been a while. It popped up even in the sanctification portion. But the focus of chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3 is the depravity of man. So we spent a lot of time on that. And when the Bible speaks of death, I've shown this slide several times. Let me just review it. But it's a description of who we are. Ephesians 2.1 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean we're not breathing. That doesn't mean we don't have a heartbeat. That doesn't mean that we're not living out 
some existence. It means that we are spiritually dead. That includes what we call, or I called, I don't know too many people that describe it as comprehensive death. Bible speaks of comprehensive death that touches every aspect of who we are. And because we are dead spiritually, that means that we, the Bible uses another word, depraved, depravity. And I gave you a list of things. These are from Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, in beginning in verse 7, they're separated from God. That spiritual separation, that spiritual death, that is spiritual deadness. That's spiritual depravity. Seven and eight, they're separated from God. And again, God takes the initiative. We're going to see that in this passage in Romans. The mind is affected by the sin. Their, their thinking is twisted. How do you hide from an omnipresent God? How do you hide from an all-knowing God who knows every hiding place? <laughs> you can't escape God, yet they're thinking and they're fleeing because their whole theology is distorted now. Their whole thinking has been darkened, is what Paul says in Ephesians. That's intellectual death. That is intellectual depravity. So our thinking is affected. So our entire being, including thinking, morality, they have the first shame. So all the moral areas of right and wrong is twisted and Tainted by sin, that's depravity. Emotional, they experience the first fear. You could also include shame there as well. So emotional, that's brought out in verse 10 of Genesis 3. So depravity includes our emotions. Our emotions have died in a sense as well. I said socially, our relationships are broken Adam blamed Eve, remember? He tried to put it off on her, and even, essentially, he blames God. The woman which you gave me. In other words, had you not given me this woman, I wouldn't be in this predicament. So, the social life, verses 11 and 12, Genesis 3, also is deadness, depravity. Our, our purpose, the purpose of mankind is damaged. So, every the point being, this is a description of total depravity. Every area, you could even include, I don't have it on this slide, but you could include our volition, in other words, our will. But we have it in Romans, there's none that seeks after God. In other words, there's none that has a desire for God. Not even one is what Romans tells us. So you could include our will as well, our will, deadness or depravity, and even physically. This is where suffering and pain in fact, the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they began to die. Adam lived 930 more years. His heart kept beating. He kept breathing. But in that time frame, his individual cells continually died. And he began to suffer the pains of dying cells, etc. We see that brought out in verse 19, Genesis 3, pain and death. And uh, you might even say, ultimately, when he ceased to breathe. So that's the, the theological context of the passage that we're looking at here. I think is total depravity, and I'll come back to that. I'll remind you when we get into the passage. Because once we look at some of these aspects of his divine plan, I think it'll help us to sort out some of the issues that some theologians have here. So in verse 29... Let me go back to it here. For whom he foreknew, I'll just read it, he also predestined, and then he's going to give us a little description of that. And then verse 30, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, this is verse 30, these he also justified. He's giving us a chain here of how God has worked and will work, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Remember, this is in the context of sanctification. This is the end product of sanctification. We call that glorification. And what we have here is like a chain, so I'm going to use that analogy and that imagery, a chain of what God has done, 
and what God is in the process of doing and what God will, in fact, do. This is part of the plan in terms of the believer, those called according to his purpose, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is the plan for them. It began in eternity past. Now, this passage doesn't stress the concept of election. And this is one of the areas that people have a very, very, very hard time with. Basically, the idea is God made choices. And when we speak of the doctrine of election, it pertains to the choice that choices that God made in relationship to his human creatures. You might even include his angelic creatures. I think there's a passage that relates to them as well. God made choices. Now, if you can use the analogy, when you make, when you make a plan, you make a plan, let's say, to take a trip. Well, you've made some choices there. You've eliminated maybe London. Maybe you eliminated Hong Kong. Maybe you eliminated Japan. Maybe you eliminated uh, other places. Because you have one point in mind, Israel. You're going to take a trip to Israel. This is your plan. So you've made some choices already and eliminated some other options. In your plan, you make other sub-plans, sub-parts to it. And in these planning, you make choices all along the way. The doctrine of election simply tells us that in eternity past, I believe, God made choices. I don't have a problem with that. He made a creation. He has a purpose for it. He has a plan for it. He can do with it whatever he so pleases. The issue is, well, there are some that never believe. What about them? And you have the whole spectrum of ideas. How do you explain that? All the way from, I think, an extreme view that said that God chose some for eternal punishment. Now, there's no verse that says that, so I don't want to go in that direction. And then there's the other end of the spectrum in terms of the next part here for knowledge. And I think the other end, and I have a problem with it, is that God foresaw all of the future events. He foresees everything in the future. Now that is true, but many theologians, in fact the Arminian, and not just Arminian, some others as well, uh, Arminian in terms of theology, they would say that when God foresaw, he looked forward and he saw, oh, there's Dwayne, he's going to believe in me. Um, there's Photios, he's going to believe in me. Therefore, I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose. He's part of my chosen because I'm looking forward to see what he is going to do. Now, God knows what everybody's going to do. And he knows the outcome because he has planned it. He's got a plan. But the Arminian view is that uh, God foresees and selects, because there's clear passages concerning election, on the basis of what his creatures decide. Personally, I have no problem with God making a selection and passing over others because of the doctrine of depravity. And if you think about the doctrine of depravity, God had every just right, you might say, to exclude all of humanity after Adam and Eve first sinned. God would be perfectly just and totally good If he condemned Adam and Eve, he told them, in the day that you eat of the fruit that's in the midst of the garden, you shall what? Surely die. In that promise, God didn't say, but that's okay, I've got a plan of salvation. We can cover that. We can can handle that. God didn't say that. He would have been perfectly just had he left Adam and Eve in death. And eventually, maybe even in a shorter period of time, eternal death. Done, finished with all of humanity. Over, complete. God remains just. God remains good. God remains wise. God remains sovereign. God remains everything that God is. But he also chose in that plan to provide a means where he would save some. And because of depravity, 
left to ourselves, none of us, according to Romans, there's none that seeks after God, there's none righteous, there's none that understands, because of depravity, none of us would choose God. So God takes the initiative, and we have the example in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve flee, and what does God do? God is the one that takes the initiative to draw them back to him, probes their thinking, asks them questions in order to elicit a response from Adam and Eve that they may partake in the salvation that he has granted. Does that make sense? God did not have any obligation to Adam and Eve, could have left them in their deadness, but because he also has a plan, he begins to implement it with the first man and the first woman, and he, in Scripture, expands upon that plan that would ultimately require the death of his only begotten son. Part of the plan. So I have no problem with God selecting some, and I've got it kind of a different color there because it's not in this biblical text. But I mention it because you find it in, for example, Ephesians 1, 1, 4, where God chose, and it puts it in the context of before the foundations of the world. In other words, in eternity past, God made some selections. And then in this chain, he's going to work out what he intended in eternity past and what he's revealed. Is that helpful? may not solve all your theological problems, and you may still have some issues here like Bill may have here. Yeah, let me just toss something into the mix here. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is the key passage. Another key passage, yes. And he says, my ways are not your That's right. And my thoughts are not your That's right. As high as the heavens are, so are my thoughts are your thoughts. Right. And so we look at this and we say, well, either God already selected those that are going to be saved, or they have a freedom of choice. What God is telling us in the Isaiah 55 passage is, both are true yes. and you'll never... Yes. And the key there, both are true. Volition is part of the plan, part of the way God has set things up, and he never violates man's volition. I think he has influence over it. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through the chain. We may not complete the chain today, but we'll get a good start on it. All right. Yes. Yes. Say the A or B, but what I think that really helped besides my life for bodies and all these things. This passage from three in the same chapter you're talking about choosing whatever they win, whatever they want. And then right next to three John three sixteen. John three sixteen chapter and same conversation. Jesus mm-hmm. laying both. And uh, like a friend here both are Yeah, Bill. Yep. Both are both are true. Correct. Regardless of our capacity to understand. Because we don't understand a lot of things in nature, but doesn't disqualify they are. That they exist, exactly. exactly. Very good point. That's Very good point. Yeah. So, when we talk about this doctrine of election, it is troubling, and it is hard to comprehend, and it is hard to put it all together. But I think the balance, as Bill has pointed out, is you have to hold to both concepts. Yes, man has volition. Our tendency is to go to one end and or the other. We might overstress God's plan or God's will, God's action is a better word, and or we overstress volition and overshadow the sovereign plan of God. I think you keep the balance. So I have no problem with God making choices, making selections, and passing over others. Those that are passed over, it seems unfair, until you think about depravity and realize God has no obligation to any unbeliever. Get Bill. Cross out one other thought here. I think we get in a lot of trouble when we try to sit on God's throne. Yep. Um, we need to be very much the bond slave, not the master of the house. So we need to be asking the question, what does God require and ask of me in this situation as opposed to trying to Right. Now, before we go on, and we'll get back to the verse here, let me lay out this chain. And I think it's an, at the end, I'm going to try to show that it's an unbreakable chain, part of this plan, God's plan. 
We have foreknowledge, and in the text, we have predestination, another very difficult word. We'll look at it. We have calling. We've looked at it already, but I think the first three there are in eternity past. God set this plan in motion, envisioned it, and made some choices, election. He foreknows all that's going to take place. He sees it all as if it was already (coughs) done. And he predestinates. I like to think of the word orchestrates or works out, as verse 28 is telling us. And now we come into time. Now it deals with 21st century. He's dealing with us or the 20th century. Whenever you became a believer and others are in the process of making choices, that involves calling. Now, not in the text, but there's other passages that tell us that part of this calling, God is going to convict, and I think he convicts all, and he convicts in varying degrees, and I think he convicts particularly those that he chose. He convicts them of their sin. That doesn't mean that they respond. He also illuminates them and shows them not only are they in a desperate, lost, dead condition, but there is a solution. And the solution is Jesus Christ, and he is the only solution, the only way. And when those that he has chosen, the elect, are convicted of their sin and realize, and they turn from that, that's called repentance, And they realize Jesus is the only answer, and they're convinced of that. Then the only thing that God requires of mankind is to trust in what God has accomplished. Now, it's not in this passage. Faith is not here. The emphasis is in what God is doing. And I think God chose in eternity past for knowing all of the options, all of the possibilities, orchestrating all of the future events, to a point in time when you and I were involved and he called us. You heard the gospel, you saw it lived out, you heard it explained, or maybe you read a passage or you read a tract. It convicted you of your sin and it opened your mind up, illumined you to understand that Jesus is the only way. And in that you trusted in Jesus Christ and he declared you righteous. That's justification. We already saw that in uh, the book of Romans. All of this took place in time. And then what he's saying in this passage, the last chain is glorification. That's future. That won't happen until we go to be with the Lord. In fact, he's already alluded to that when he talked about the whole creation anticipates the redemption of the body. When our bodies will be removed from the sinful aspect and we will be given glorified bodies. All of the universe is anticipating that. And in that future time, when we go to be with the Lord, we will be glorified. That's the chain. Now, a couple of the elements in there are not part of Romans 8, 28 through 30. But I think I include them to help explain what goes on in from other passages. So when it says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, that's the beginning here, he also predestined to become. So we're, we're beginning the, the chain here. He predestined, the, he also predestined <coughs> to become conformed to the image of his son. The plan includes, and by the way, this passage tells us he's not focusing necessarily on salvation here. Obviously, you have to have salvation for any of this, so I think it's included. But the focus of the passage is actually the outworking of salvation. Remember, he's talking about sanctification here. So this plan includes lots of details concerning our Christian life. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, that's sanctification. That's the context. So let's look at this word for knowledge, because we sometimes have trouble understanding the meaning of the word. And like most words, in fact, I've said that virtually every theological term that you have in Scripture has an everyday usage, everyday meaning. The Bible doesn't 
create these mystical, spiritual words. God uses the language that we grow up with, pulls out words, gives them spiritual meaning, but they have a base meaning, you might say, or an everyday sense. And the idea of foreknowledge, if you just look at the word itself, you recognize anything, those of you that know a little bit of Greek, prognosko. Well, that's the noun form, prognosis, that's the noun form. The verb form is prognosko. You see any parts there? Pro, you can probably figure out, means what? Ahead or before, the idea of something prior, ginosko, a very common Greek word. What's the meaning of that word? To know, it's one of the, the words. We saw oida, another word, there's two very common words. Oida is to know intuitively or apart from experience. Ginosko is by experience in general, not always. And then you have pro. So, basically, the word just means simply what? To know beforehand or to know ahead of time. That's the basic idea of the word. Uh, Both the verb, prognosco and prognosis, that's the noun form. So, when we come to the usage, and, and by the way, part of the reason theologians have a hard time here is because the word is not used very commonly. So, it's hard to... Be very precise, you might say, because of the limited usages. So you, you almost need to import a little bit of theology here. Other ideas from scripture, and here's sometimes where we get tripped up, I believe. It only occurs that the verb form only occurs five times. The noun form only two. So seven times in the New Testament. And we can look at some of these usages. The basic usage, would somebody look up Acts 26, 5, where we have the everyday, just common everyday usage. Somebody want to get that one? And then somebody look up 1 Peter 1, 20, and I've got Acts 2, 23. I'll have it on a slide, so we don't need to look up that one. Who's got Acts 26, 5? You got it, Dwayne? And who wants 1 Peter? Anybody got it? You got it, Sandy? So let's do Acts 26.5. Remember, the, the word only occurs five times. So this is the only kind of everyday usage, but I think it gives us insight into the meaning of the word. 26.5. Now this is Paul in a recounting of an experience with a certain number of people. He says, they knew me from the first. That's foreknowledge. They had foreknowledge of me. Go ahead. That according to the strictest sect of our religion, I live in Pharisee. Okay. Then you can read on and tell us more. But basically, he's just saying, they knew about my life before I encountered them. In other words, they had foreknowledge. They, they just had prior knowledge about me, very simply. Does that make sense? That's the basic idea of the word. So that's just like prior knowledge. It's not, yeah. It's not an all-inclusive. It's simply means that I've known you since 1973. Right. Before you. Right. I was three years... this time right here. Yeah, I was three years old then, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You have... Before you came in today, you had foreknowledge of me. That's the basic idea of the word. In fact, we think of it... It's not used very commonly in Scripture, but you could uh, bring it closer to home. Tomorrow, most of you or some of you were, are going to go to work. You have prior knowledge that you're going to go to work because you have a, a, a job, you have circumstances that call for you, and you're assuming the sun's going to rise, you can assume that you know your house doesn't burn down and you have other plans, but you have foreknowledge or four ideas concerning what you're going to do tomorrow or next week or you plan a trip. That's just the basic idea. So it's no big deal. No big deal. In fact, that's the case of every theological word. Problem comes is when we start talking and attaching these words to God. Now we have, uh, and this is what we need to be careful of, like Bill is warning from the Isaiah 55 passage, don't think that God's foreknowledge is the same as ours. In fact, what the Bible teaches us, we know that he is omniscient. 
He knows everything. Tomorrow you may not be able to, you may get sick and not be able to get up and go to work if that's what you foreknow or foreplan. But God knows everything and every option and he knows every outworking and he sees everything in the future as if it has already taken place. Yeah, another way to say it is God is outside of time. Yes. So it is inappropriate to use the terms past, present, future with God. Yes. Because all are saying Yep. He is eternal. In fact, we looked at the eternality as a kind of a special study last week. Okay? So when we're thinking of foreknowledge, you need to keep in mind omniscience. He's talking about omniscience here. God knowing every outcome. In fact, there's some passages that indicate the possibility of certain things that actually don't take place. Lots of passages, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, where God said, if this had taken place, then this would happen. God knows all of the options, all of the possibilities, and all of the future events that will take place in the future. And we have First Peter 1.20. You got that one, Sandy? He barely was foreordained before the foundation of the, that was manifest in these last times for you. Okay, the theologians have translated that passage, inserted some theology there. The word there is for knowledge. Well, what they've done, and I think the word, what it pertains to God, includes more than just, oh, I know what's going to happen, and I'm just kind of passive, and uh, I'm just letting it happen. I I know what's going to happen. I'm just letting it happen. I think the word does include some more. I don't know if we would want to attach the entire uh, foreordination, which is almost the same as predestination, because of this context, we have two words. Would you like me to read it out of the ESV? Go ahead. It's slightly different. Slightly different. I mean, it has a different feeling than what Sandy read. Yes. I appreciate Yeah, hers has very strong predestination idea there. What does yours say? It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Okay. Foreknowledge. It's literally translating it. But I think when it pertains to God, it may probably, in fact, I would say it more than likely has more attached to it than just, oh, I know what's going to happen. Right. And I'm helpless it to change it. Planning, yeah. planning ahead. Like, I knew yeah. I wasn't going to go to Greece because we were going to Texas. Yep. I didn't plan to end up in Greece because we're going to Texas. Right. Almost. Yeah, that's the human. I mean, I can only make a human uh, analogy to what right. he's doing. But I think when it comes to God, he not only knows all that's coming about, but along with some of the other, the next word, he's actually even orchestrating. orchestrating. Yeah. And uh, here's a verse, Romans 11:2. In fact, we can skip there. It, it pertains to Israel. The first two re- pertain to Christ. So it doesn't necessarily relate to salvation. Christ, obviously, is not one that requires salvation. But God foreknew Christ. That's the First Peter one twenty passage. Did everybody read the right one? First Peter one. Oh, no, I didn't. You read one two, didn't you? One two. Yeah. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of to him who are believers. Right, and that's the one that Sandy read. Yeah. Sandy puts, or her version puts, for ordination, and I think it would be appropriate there that this is what God planned, not just knowing, oh, someday Christ is going to come, the Messiah. It's more than that. And then your version uses foreknowledge there. Israel as well, and we're running out of time here. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Did you just know that ahead of time that Israel was going to come about? Or did he orchestrate it? So I think foreknowledge includes, in terms of God, probably other things that you can't separate from simply knowing. Yeah, told Abraham, pack up. That's right. Uh, this is the verse you read re- relating to believers. First Peter 1, 2. And then I think the passage here pertains to foreknowledge of God. The point I'm making is we want to get at the meaning. 
of the word for knowledge. And in Acts 2.23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan. There's two words there. Boule, plan, predetermined, the word uh, for predestination, and for knowledge of God. The crucifixion, not only God foresaw it, in fact, he chose it, you could say. He, in, he planned and, and orchestrated it, and it's according to this orchestrated plan that he, that he has, and here you have the foreknowledge word. So you've seen almost, I guess, all of the words that uh, occur in the New Testament. But he still holds them responsible for their evil and their choices and their volition. You, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They are responsible for the crucifixion, even though in the plan of God, this is part of the plan. It's hard to put the two together. So that's where you have to come back. If you're not believing in a good, loving God who is indeed working for good, you would say, well, that's unfair. That it seems because from the human... Judging, right. You're inciting them to do this. But right. He considers that our hearts would do it anyhow. Exactly. And we would all put Jesus on the cross and have because of our sin. We didn't put the nails, but we just... In there, we would have. (laughs) Yep, exactly. That's the good point. So we'll stop right there. Uh, We'll talk some more about predestination next time. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And we'll look at the rest of the chain, hopefully, next week. We can go away with no matter what enters our experience, suffering, we started with suffering, we can trust our Lord to use it for our good because of this grand plan that he tells us about. He wants to close for us. Is this helpful? Or does this just shed less light, more darkness? Good? Good. Who wants to close here? Phil. Oh, God, thank you that you have revealed... In the scriptures, everything we need to we use common words and you've written it in a way to grasp simply what is we thank you. And we, we also thank you that there's yet more that we can learn. The word has no disgraceful. Thank you for this privilege delving in, considering what you have for us. Father, keep us focused on our behaving in a faithful way to you, you running in. Amen. God willing, I'll see you next week.